BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I got into podcasting about 10 years ago, and it was a time in my life when I really wanted to be a musician professionally, an opera singer specifically. But I decided that any way in which I could use my voice to make money would be okay. And that's essentially how I discovered podcasting. And then I just fell in love with the medium. Before that, though, I had gotten a PhD in neuroscience, and so I had a very strong science background. And a lot of my singer friends wondered why I never really talked about the science of the voice or the anatomy of the larynx. To be honest, that kind of approach to singing just didn't work for me. I kept my artistic and scientific lives very separate, and I just got bored of looking at pictures of a larynx and trying to think about how all the parts work together when it didn't seem to make me a better singer. So I kind of avoided the entire field until more recently, as I've started to spend more of my time thinking about music and the brain and how science can actually make musicians better and make us all better. And all of a sudden, some of my singer friends started talking about this one book that they really thought was different and that they found really compelling. And I thought, well, maybe I should give it another chance. Now, this book was not written by a voice scientist. It wasn't written by any kind of scientist, really. It was written by a staff writer for The New Yorker, John Colapinto. And he was a longtime journalist at The Rolling Stone. So it's not like he hasn't thought about the voice. But his body of work is much more prolific than that. I decided to give the book a chance. And for the first time, I think I finally see how science can make me a better singer. John Colapinto, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. So I have to say that when your book first came across my desk, I sort of started to have a slight panic attack because (laughs) in the many years that I trained as an opera singer and also as a scientist, I tried to avoid the science of the voice as much as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you why. In fact, I think in your introduction, you kind of touch upon this, which I think you and I have shared a similar journey in that. I couldn't see how understanding the musculature of the larynx would make me sing better because 
I knew that a lot of the in you know the the way that our you know brains control our voice is not conscious. So you can't like try hard enough and then think your way through a vocal problem. <laughs> it happens through training, and I was really worried that I it would just become this. I'd be overthinking it, and then all of a sudden I'd like you know pop a vocal cord <laughs> because <laughs> it was just. <laughs> So and then, you know, but I was like, I'm going to have to read this book because everyone I know is going to be talking about it. And I, you know, and so I started reading it and I have to say, you completely changed my mind. And oh, wonderful. It happened in a moment where I think I think we're sort of you realize that the voice is much more than a skill that we learn that, you know, that we use just for speech or even for singing. But rather, it's got all of these interesting, beautiful mysteries about what it means to be human embedded within it. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the reason I wanted to be an opera singer is because there was something about the magic of opera singing mm-hmm. that I felt like touched on something that was so human, but also not available in any other medium. Wow. Well, you know, it's great to hear you say that about the book. I mean, I think when I was the one opera singer that I sort of go into any real depth on is Renee Fleming, where she really talks about achieving those really difficult high notes, for instance, really by by visualization of where she's aiming her voice within her own body. In other words, she's almost tricking herself into not thinking about her vocal apparatus particularly, not thinking about doing stuff with her tongue or, you know, it's like the way a tennis player will not be thinking about how to move the arm in order to hit it to someone's backhand, but instead does almost a pre-visualization kind of an understanding. I think my book talks about the voice in a way that certainly makes people acutely aware of aspects of the mechanism that they never thought about before. But I do hope and and maybe what you're saying means that it is the case that it also tries to sort of suggest that in some respects the voice is almost beyond our control but that it's about yourself sort of emerging it's 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 almost this is not a self-help book let me stress but it's it might have something in it about kind of releasing yourself, releasing the muscles, releasing your personality, maybe a little bit less fear or or something and sort of finding an honesty in the in the voice and the noises we make. I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. It absolutely does to me. And I think it actually gets at some of the, yeah, the most fascinating aspects, the things that fascinated me anyway about about the voice and and why I've I've spent so many decades now training my voice, but also thinking about it and and thinking about how to use it to elicit you know an emotion or a reaction from other people as a performer. But I want to talk. I want to start out with sort of to also talking because you also have this really great arc about how it fundamentally changed our species. Yes, <laughs> in a yes. way that was very new to me. Like. Because I, you know, I've read Jared Diamond, I've read Stephen Pinker, you know, these ideas that like, you know, it's, it was the dropping of the larynx that allowed us to create speech sounds that ultimately made us human, or as uh, Stephen Pinker suggests, you know, music is just auditory cheesecake, you know, hitting on the things that our minds and our biology evolved, you know, to support speech, but not music. And I feel like, you know, the way that you were talking about it was really resonated with me because I, I, I was like nodding my head um, all the oh, way. Oh, great. Actually, I want to start with Noam Chomsky. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, because I think that that's the best example for a person who hasn't spent as much time as you and I have thinking about this problem to illustrate what the real magic is here. So so, so tell us a little bit about Noam Chomsky, his you know theory of, of language 
and why you think it's wrong. Noam Chomsky said in the late 1950s that language is innate. It's inborn. It's somehow in our brains. No matter what language we speak, we all have this inborn talent for speech. And um, the surface differences between Japanese and English and French are literally that uh, surface. It's almost like a language organ in the brain, he said, that creates a universal grammar that kind of unites all languages. And he really spent, and his acolytes have spent the last 60 years, delving into sentences uh, in different languages, seeking these universal properties that are shared by languages that on the surface look completely different. Now, this was groundbreaking because it went against this blank slate notion of human consciousness and and human life. And it really started to suggest that so many other things are innate. And lo and behold, all sorts of science followed in which gender and sexual orientation and lots of other things were determined to be inborn, less affected by environment. However, in the linguistic realm, Chomsky was super interesting, too, because and a bit surprising because he was unable to account for where this language capability, this language organ in our brain came from. He didn't want to say, for some reason, that it was Darwinian evolution, that it evolved somehow by natural selection, which is how all complexity in biological organisms develops. So how could it have happened? Well, he said, we just don't know. We're never going to know. It might just be because we got so many neurons. Some fluke occurred. And that was highly unsatisfying to a lot of scientists. And um, and it really ends up pointing at two difficulties in the Chomsky sort of program. One, 60 years on, very, very few universals have been found. Maybe two or three or something. Not enough anyway to make it super convincing. And then the other thing is that scientists have looked closely at how language probably evolved in us and have discovered all sorts of fascinating theories and and ideas and, in fact, facts that I go into in my book and that really do end up undermining so much of what Chomsky said, everything from how babies attain language, because he said it's inborn and it needs just the slightest environmental stimulus to come out. He talked about how babies, he knew language had to be inborn because babies lying in their cribs are just hearing like mumbled adult speech. It's sort of ungrammatical sentences that aren't quite finished, coughs in the middle of them. You name it, the child's input is, as he put it, it's the poverty of the stimulus. And yet within a couple of years, they're speaking in sentences. So one can understand why he thought it might be inborn. But science since has looked at the incredible speed at which babies learn and when they start learning. So that's a very long answer that goes in a lot of different directions. But Chomsky is this amazing guy who did give us, you know, a, a sort of focus on the on language. But he left out this crucial thing, the voice speech, the way that our species before writing, which was only 5,000 years ago, our species for hundreds of thousands of years, the default method for, for language, in fact, the only method was speaking. I mean, some hand gestures maybe, but our voices, that was left out. He called voice an epiphenomenon, a secondary consideration. And I mean, it's just not, it's just not plausible, I don't think. 
And I think this is where I started. It made me sit up when I was reading your book and really pay attention and get excited because you a lot of us, even when we think about speech, we just think spoken words. And maybe we can acknowledge that, yes, there's some prosody involved. There's a melody to the speech. So I can tell if someone is being sarcastic or if they're asking a question on the race uh, on the basis of the rising and falling of their tone. But what you made clear is that it's so, so, so much more than that. Mm. And that, in fact, let's say that you're asking a child to form a question from the statement, a unicorn is in the garden. So, uh, you know, you you mentioned like even a three-year-old will know that to make a question, you shift the verb is to the front, is a unicorn in the garden. But you also note that, that you don't make a nonsense sentence when you have a second portion to that sentence. So if you say a unicorn that is eating a flower is in the garden, you don't just say is a unicorn that eating a flower is in the garden and that that kids don't make that mistake. And that's what correct. Right. So yeah. So tell us about like, so what Chomsky thought about that, and then what your insights were. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 really cool that Chomsky came up with this example because he he was correct in saying, look, language is well, he seemed to be correct when he said language has got to be inborn because kids don't listen to speech and learn a hard and fast rule like to make a question just shift is to the front of the sentence. Because if you do that, if the sentence is slightly more complex, like the second one you said, a unicorn that is in the garden is eating a flower. If you shift that first is to the front the sentence doesn't work. You actually have to shift the second is and a chunk that's in the middle of that whole sentence to the front. So his point was, we have these grammatical structures, these kind of chunks of language. We don't speak in a string of words. We speak in meaningful chunks of language, noun phrases, verb phrases. So it's sort of a set of words that we shift around. I mean, it's a beautiful insight of his, but what I think he, clearly he didn't go far enough to think about the fact that when he said that there is no way that a child could know that you shift the second is because there's no obvious way that they could learn that, there is a totally obvious way. The way language sounds, the prosody, the melody to which we're fitting the lyrics of everything we say. So let's look at the melody of that sentence. Is a unicorn that is in, oh, a unicorn that is in the garden is eating a flower? Well, we say a unicorn that is in the garden. A unicorn that is in the garden is eating a flower. Now, I exaggerated it. I dropped my voice for that that embedded phrase. A unicorn that is in the garden is eating a flower. But we do that, and we do it quite subtly. And if you doubt the subtlety, if you doubt that we all make that melodic downward pitch shift in order to embed the phrase, just try saying it like this. Unicorn that is in the garden. I mean, that's where you'd have to say it if you're going to eliminate the music from speech. And we don't do that. So what babies are hearing is an incredible array of things in adult speech. But one of the things they're hearing, and a critical thing, is grammar, is the shape and melody of grammar, the satisfying way that particular embedded phrases sort of stay in key and land back on key satisfyingly to end a phrase or within an embedded phrase, and then the pitch lifts for the next part of the sentence. So we get these contoured movements across sentences that babies are highly alert to. And a reason why? They start listening to them when they're in the womb. When they're 28 weeks old, they are hearing 
and not just hearing but feeling the shape of these sentences because their mother's voice is carried to them by bone conduction as well, right through her skeleton into the womb. It's felt against the entire body that the baby can just feel moving against it. And these are, this is, the only real outside stimulus that a, a baby is receiving for a couple of months before it's born. Then it's born into a bath of language where everybody speaking around it is speaking in these melodic, contoured ways. And babies, I insist, are hearing grammar. And there is science to show it. Yeah, and you talk about one of these studies uh, at Temple University where Kathy Hirsch-Pasek um, was, was playing speech sounds through a speaker and a baby, uh, infants, were either looking you know, towards what they're interested in, or, you know, giving them the back of the hand, as it were, by looking away. And when she inserted these pauses at inopportune times, the babies, you know, really, uh, you know, gave them the back of the hand. And so this, yes. is, this is not interesting. And that to me was yes. really fascinating, because we think of prosody as really just to be about the emotion in the speech. But what you're saying is that the melody of the speech, the music of the language is actually fundamental to our understanding of the grammar. And yes. uh, yeah, and that's really exciting to me as a person who just recently wrote a white paper about the importance of music education as part of every child's curriculum. Oh, yeah, because yeah, the yeah. point that we're trying to make is that this is fundamental to development, to learning, to being human. And it's not just about, you know, being able to express your woes when you're a teenager on the guitar <laughs> or by singing. Yeah. It's really about understanding something fundamental being human, the sort of melody, the 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 music of of yes. language. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was left out of science, you know, because Chomsky was so influential and he really said all the action is up in the brain. All of this stuff that brought us to the top of the food chain is really stuff that's in the brain. We want to look at these. Uh, we want to look at these grammatical structures as they're represented in particular circuits of the brain. A cool idea. But, you know, it, really, he left out this other thing, which is how that language is actually moved from head to head, how how I'm beaming my thoughts into your brain and you're doing the same to me on ripples of air. I mean, it's an ex it's an exceptional thing. It's right under our noses, no pun intended, that we are doing a, just something that is almost like out of a sci-fi movie or something. You wouldn't believe it in a movie about another species on another planet. And that gets us to the actual physical apparatus, which now I feel much more comfortable talking about. <laughs> because, you know, I think that understanding how our vocal cords work, you know, is, is it tells us a little bit about how these sound waves are crafted and eventually perceived by another ear. And I think that makes it more interesting to me than just trying to understand, you know, how to sing better by manipulating my larynx, which I can't really do. And I was really surprised when you talk about the origins of the vocal apparatus that you started with an animal that I don't don't usually consider one to make a lot of vocalizations. In fact, if I had a pet, I would say the most silent pet I could get would be a fish. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so why do we start with fish? Whoa, it's insane. You know, when I was making the proposal for this book and I, I sort of was thinking, I was trying to decide if I even wanted to write a book about the voice. When I read this detail, I thought I have to write a book just to get this in here. Our voices start with a creature called the lungfish, which was the literally the first, uh, you know, ocean-going creature to emerge onto land. 
thus really the beginning of all species that are living on land and breathing air. And this uh, this creature, the reason that it developed as a set of lungs was because it lived in swamps. It lived in very shallow water environments. And as an underwater fish, it used gills in order to extract oxygen from the water and expel CO2, like in the act of breathing, but underwater. Now, when there was droughts, these fish would be trapped on land. Most of them died because fish can't live on in air. But one or two or who knows how many underwent this random genetic change. And again, evolution is so funny because nothing's planned. It literally is an accident, but it's an act accident that confers an advantage. And what happened was this animal, lucky enough to develop this mutation that allowed it to take some air from, take some oxygen from the air through its gills. So suddenly it could do a little bit of air breathing, just, just enough to let it live long enough to get back into water or maybe the rain came, whatever happened, this particular gene that was so advantageous to a shallow water fish got propagated through fish that were born after that. And it mutated over time so that it became the float, the flotation bladders, these hollow chambers on either side of the spine in fish that keep it, you know, keep them upright in water, those turned into lungs. And think of how our lungs are, you know, on either side of our spine. It's remarkable. Now, but there was one little wrinkle. As it developed the ability to breathe on land by actually those gills actually became, a hole actually occurred at the bottom of the throat in the gills that had a passageway into those new rudimentary lungs that had once been swim bladders, if you can picture that. So that when the fish went back into water, because it still had gills, this is a, a hybrid animal. When it went back into the water, it could drown. All of a sudden it had lungs like us that can fill with water. So what did it do? Well, again, lucky mutation. Some, some of those fish developed a valve at the top of the, of the, well, actually in the hole in its throat, a valve that can open and close. So when it goes back into water, it can close the valve to prevent water from coming in. And when it's in on land, it opens the valve up and it can suck air in through that. And uh, it's literally from that very rudimentary valve. It was really like a sphincter muscle. It was from that incredible little apparatus that our human voices developed, extraordinarily enough. In the animals that came after the phyla of, of, of sort of higher uh, air-breathing, land-dwelling animals, reptiles first, like lizards and crocodiles, and then emerging from that, mammals, oh, of course, dinosaurs and birds, you know, they they refined this breathing system. Lungs got better at, you know, they weren't just these sort of hollow swim bladders all of a sudden. And with mammals, all of a sudden you've got a diaphragm, which really allows for a sort of fine gradations of of breathing. You know, you can now vary how hard you push the air out and how much air you push out. But meanwhile, that valve suddenly develops some cartilages and it develops some mus musculature so that the vocal cords can be opened and closed better at will for better breathing when you're holding them open. And then also, you know, like little mice and mice-like mammals that suddenly discovered that, you know, these vocal noises were very, very good for alerting others of their species of a danger, of threatening an uh, interloper, of making mating sounds. And so refinements to, the, to that valve 
started to be introduced. What refinements? Well, muscles that could pull the membranes a little bit tauter. And when you pull an elastic band more taut, you get a higher pitch sound. So all of it, and if you loosen it, you get a lower sound. So all of, all of a sudden, animals began to realize, hey, I can like make a low sound, I can make a high sound. And those have expressive qualities, as Darwin pointed out, emotionally expressive qualities, even in animals. So you had these refinements happening to the vocal apparatus, to the lungs, diaphragm, and then in our species, extraordinary refinements to the speed and precision and planning of our tongue and lip movements. This isn't to say that you know, other animals, other mammals aren't good at it. We really develop the skill from from other mammals because mammals are defined by uh, the fact that they breastfeed. That's mammal is from mammary. And uh, in the, the, the act of sucking on a nipple is incredibly complex in terms of the muscular movements of cheeks, lips, tongue, swallowing. All of that coordinated movement was something that sort of gave the correct structures for later speech, but that we refined in our species to be able to do what I'm currently doing right now, which is giving way too long an answer to your excellent question. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I mean, I, I love this 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 view of vocal cords as a valve rather than a cord, because, you know, I think that as singers, we often think about projecting our sound and we have this image of like, you know, a sound wave that's going kind of vertically up out of our mouths and out into the air, as opposed to a valve that creates rare fractions and, and compressions of air by opening and closing in, in the horizontal direction. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah, and that that should fundamentally change how a person, especially a singer, thinks about their breath apparatus. And anyway, I found that uh, that image really compelling and I was delighted to see that, you know, we can talk about it in terms of these really funny origins. Yes. 
Yes. You know, it also and also like hearing about the the complexity of the suckling action. I, I have a you know two year old uh, kid, and and she uh, we've recently tried to get her to stop using a baby bottle because everyone tells you that she's going to have like it's probably not true, but like dental pro- you know all these issues that are you know, if you didn't bottle too long, and like so for the last month she's been off the bottle, and then I read your book and like last night she got her bottle back. <laughs> Ah, hilarious. Like, nice. Oh, no, we need to like, yeah, if you want to, you, you, we got to have all kinds of different, you know, like bottle tops that you got to learn to suck from. That's so hilarious. yeah, so she, so she was very excited. She she's a big fan of yours already. Uh, <laughs> nice. It was like Christmas come early again. But the one thing that so, you know, there's so many things in your book that I was just like nodding my head along with. But then there was one part that I shook my head at. <laughs> And I want to talk about it a little bit because I think that ultimately you and I agree, but I think that you were maybe a little bit influenced by a theory of brain evolution that I think really needs to be overturned because it's it's been part of you know our, our interpretation of brain for too long and it's just simply wrong, which is the triune theory of the brain. This idea that we ah have- yes, I knew. I almost put a footnote <laughs> saying or an end note saying there has been considerable revision <laughs> of thinking about this, but. Now, and perhaps you want to first explain to our listeners what the triune brain theory is. Yes, and also why I'm nitpicking about this because I, you know, sure. you know, there's, you know, the, yeah. So, so the triune theory is this idea that we have these three distinct layers of brain that have evolutionarily different ages. So the the brainstem, which is evolutionarily speaking, the oldest part of the brain is called the lizard brain or the reptilian brain, because that's what we share with, you know, reptiles and lizards. Then, you know, as evolution progressed, we evolved the limbic system, which is supposed to control our emotions. And then like the creme de la creme, you know, maybe what makes us human is our highly folded uh, cortex, neocortex, neo for new, which is the outer layer, the bark, you know, what we what when you look at a brain a human brain that's that's really what you're seeing and what you're imagining but the reason that it's wrong is because for one thing reptiles have uh, many parts of the mammalian brain you know that there too so it's not like they just have a brain stem and they don't have you know what would be analogs of limbic system and cortex um, but also because our brains continue to evolve in concert and these layers do not act in distinctly so one of the things that sometimes people say is like oh don't let your lizard brain take over which is you, sure. know, you know or you know don't let your limbic brain you know your emotions take over your rational thought with this this notion that these things really are separable just recently on the show we had lisa feldman barrett on who wrote a great book called how emotions are made which underscores uh the research in emotions that shows that emotions really are constructed moment to moment so they're not something that we just and and the reason i think this is important when it comes to the voice is because there are so many aspects that there's so much uh, back and forth between how we feel and how our emotions are, are running through our bodies and how we are able to speak i mean we hear emotion in voice and and mm-hmm. you talk about that too so that's a long, you know, preamble for me to sort of ask. Yeah. Let me, um, as I say, push back. Yeah, no, no, please. I'm not pushing back. Go ahead. No, I'll just actually explain why I permitted myself the simplification of talking about the triune brain. A, it's useful uh, for lay people to have some understanding that there are whether and, and indeed, you know, reptiles are not without some limbic and cortical, you know, neuro- neurology, but. It's useful in understanding that there are, you know, proportionality. There is, there's sort of a greater 
amount of you know, cortex for obviously in humans, a bigger amount. And the limbic structures are more fully developed in mammals than they are in like lower lizards, for instance. And the only reason I granted myself the 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 uh, uh, permission really was that Robert Sapolsky in his superb book, Behave, and he's just such an incredibly smart guy, he uses it. He says, hey, listen, this isn't fully, you know, this isn't the full story, but it is useful for talking about the brain, talking about our emotions, talking about our perceptions. And I also, I will say in, in my own defense, that the book, my book then goes on to talk about how the, the interpenetration, interconnection, intercommunication between all the layers. I mean, Damasio's studies of how the limbic system, you know, talks to the cortex and the cortex talks back and controls the limbic. So in fact, I think I, I gradually undermine the idea that these layers are operating independently, that in fact, there's all of these axons that are interpenetrating. And, and the whole thing is a bit of a, not fully understood to put it mildly jumble of circuitry and connections. But I, I do, I guess I would say that I feel like the, the, the triune brain is still useful, I think, for the lay person. But you know more about this stuff, and it may be something that really needs to go on the trash heap. I mean, I just think that as long as we can understand that an emotion, first of all, is not this universal, you know, single thing that uh, can can sort of hijack our behavior without us having any say in it. I, I think that that's kind of where we need to set it aside, because I think the implications there are, are pretty important and pretty, yes, pretty significant. Sure. But yeah, I, for sure. But I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's very hard for me, actually, to, to teach neuroanatomy without without falling into into the, the triune brain without, you know, you talking about these kinds of layers, without talking about the evolution. And so I, I, I totally feel your pain. Yeah, yeah. I just sure. want to start also just to, you know, just to mention that I hope that we can start to find a different metaphor that really captures more of the constructive nature of what's happening in the moment. And I think that this really pertains to the voice. And as you talk about it, like, you know, that you made, you, you gave a, an example of in, in, I think it was 2000. Eight when you were reading about the subprime mortgage crisis and your oh, yes. your son yes. came in and you said hi how was school and he was like what's wrong <laughs> yes. yes so I want to talk a little bit about how he knew that something was wrong and how it is that our our voices betray our emotional states that absolutely obsessed me it was another thing that I was just determined to try to take head on because it has not been well studied for the for the very good reason that what my son would have been hearing when I was trying as hard as I could to sound cheerful and unworried, and he said, what's wrong? What he was obviously detecting was something about the pattern of vibration of the molecules that I had set in motion with my vocal apparatus. Now, I had um, achieved the linguistic uh, function of shaping the words, hi, Johnny, how was school? But there are other layers of the molecular lasagna that is voice that I was clearly, that were clearly not operating properly against those cheerful words. So what on earth was I doing? So there has to have been, so what are the variables? Well, it could be something of pitch, which is obviously in the highness or lowness of the notes, maybe the way I moved between pitches, but then it could also have been something about the volume or maybe the way the volume dropped off. Or was it something about the pace, the speed, or was it the attack of the syllables? Or was it, I mean, I could go on like this for the next five minutes talking about different variables and their interblending that he could have been and clearly was hearing. Now, science has studied this very, very poorly, 
almost, which is to say almost not at all, because it's so damn difficult. As you probably know, for much of the 20th century, science wouldn't look at emotion at all because they just said it's, we can't know about it. It's impossible. So they came up with behaviorism. They just, they, they studied other stuff. So the study of emotion is incredibly new. And there really is only one scientist that dedicated himself to studying emotion in the voice, that part of the acoustic signal that you could, if you're smart, somehow parse out from all the other parts of the signal, linguistic words and syllables, the, the linguistic prosody that we talked about. But then there's this other thing that's vibrating in the molecules, which is how you feel feel. Well, how on earth do you study that? Uh, because not to mention that uh, all the things that are creating those vibrations are invisible. They're somewhere inside the body. They're in the throat. They're down in the lungs. They're somewhere in the mouth. You can't see any of this. And then they're acting on invisible molecules. I mean, I don't blame people for saying emotion's too hard to study in the voice. Just can't do it. Well, there was this wonderful German scientist, Klaus Scherer, who studied at Harvard and devoted himself to trying to learn, trying to parse out. And really what he what he did was, I mean, he just came up with extremely smart studies, ultimately deciding that the best way to study emotion in the voice, because data is extremely hard to get. You know, you he would listen to like quiz shows with uh, people getting excited. And that was okay, except that he was always listening to a bad TV speaker, so his data didn't sound good. He constructed video games where he would have people operating like a helicopter avatar and then like stress them out as they were doing it and then ask them to speak as they were doing it, as they were playing the game. But the responses are kind of weak, you know, like a pilot in a real crash makes horrifying noises, which he also studied, but those are also short-lived and they soon end with the sound of an explosion. So he needed repeatability. He needed cleanly recorded data. He needed controls. And really what he ended up realizing, and it, it took some time to, to learn this, was that you actually can ask actors to imitate vocal emotion. And I thought this was crazy at first because I thought, wait, 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 how do we study sort of artifacts of unintended emotion in a voice? If we, if we say to an actor, give me this intended, give me this emotion. They mean it's got to be bad data. Fascinatingly, Scherer learned that if you use method actors, really good method actors, and you direct them properly, i.e. you don't tell them to sound angry. Instead, you present them with a scenario and then just see how they behave. Plus, he was so smart that he even removed things like language, which can contaminate. So he created these uh, nonsense syllable sentences. Long story short, he you know, recorded a ton of these actors, had a huge, beautiful sampling of stuff. He then proceeded, of sounds, sentences, and he proceeded to parse these with, you know, acoustic instruments that measured minute changes in pitch and volume and attack and all those things I mentioned earlier that can be variables in speech. And he meticulously noted these, these things for particular emotions and so on. And so it laid out a big, huge chart. Who this was supposed to be useful for is, is a bit of a question. I think he was imagining it might be used by computer scientists to create plausible sounding emotion in computer voices. It was not used that way. We might talk about that later, how it was, what, what was actually done. But, you know, you got this guy meticulously figuring out how these emotions are, are encoded. And what he said to me was, in an instance like me saying to my son, hey, Johnny, how was school? And him saying, what's wrong? He said, part of what's happening there 
is that he knows your voice so well. So in fact, we do this type of quote unquote mind reading, like the wife who says to the husband when he's just asked for the remote control, are you having an affair? And then she later says to her friend, I just heard something in his voice. I mean, you know, people recount these stories. She knows his voice so well. You know, we really, we get to know voices as well as we know faces. And we would know if someone had a slightly hostile expression on their face, even if they were trying to hide it sometimes. So again, I mean, it's, it, you know, the, the things that are, are giving us away in our voice, that are giving away our hidden emotions, our lusts, our envy, our resentment are astonishingly subtle, but we are astonishingly uh, sensitive instruments to the human voice. Just amazing. It really speaks to our ability to listen and hear these fine gradations in voice. And that's what gets me to, I was so surprised that you tackled what I think is probably the most difficult question in all of like voice science, which is what makes one singer sound authentic and great, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and you, you, you dig right in. So, so tell us about, about this, because as you mentioned, there are a lot of programs out there that can pitch correct, that can polish up a voice to make it sound quote unquote perfect when a person is singing. And yet, and those kinds of produced tracks can make, you know, millions of dollars for their artists. But there's also something about authenticity that kind of just creates a, a fervor in fans that I think is not matched by the kind of auto-tuned pop songs. So, Ain't it the truth? Yeah. So tell, tell us, about what, what is that? Oh, my God. Well, again, you know, you're hitting all the things that obsessed me most before I started writing. Because I had, I had sung myself. I had sung pop tunes and so on and coffee bars and the couple arts festivals. I mean, so I would sort of sing. There was a period of my life where I was even writing songs in my college years. And what I quickly realized was that I could not sing in a way, A, that was original to myself. I was a very good mimic and imitator. But this got me thinking about what is the authenticity? What is the realness, the genuineness that is making, say, James Taylor sound so real and good to me. Elvis Costello. You know, it doesn't have any genre of singing. George Jones as a country and Western singer. What am I hearing? How is that happening? And it, partly it was a personal quest. It was a kind of frustration that I realized I am not finding that. I can't find it. When I became a writer, curiously enough, I discovered that sort of hard work of finding my voice as a writer. And it's got a lot to do with giving up if you'll pardon the expression, a lot of bullshit, a lot of fakeness, a lot of uh, trying to sound good as a writer or as a singer. And it's got to do with whittling yourself down to your true personality. And it's got to do with um, not trying to be perfect, you know, spectrographic acoustic analysis of singing voices, of, of the best singing voices, even trained operatic singers show they're not always on the mathematical middle of a note frequency. Um, they're sometimes behind or ahead of the beat and deliberately. In pop singing, I mean, we know that Bob Dylan can sometimes break our heart with a voice that sounds like a cheese grater. So, you know, and that's because he found that voice. How did he do it? And how did he have the nerve in an era when people like Fabian were getting famous? I mean, it's astounding. So it's got something to do with a kind of artistic courage. It's got something to do with a strength of character and a determination to be you. 
I talked, I did speak to a vocal coach, Laura Antonioli, who was very helpful to me in saying how she, in teaching jazz, which is kind of the ultimate in stripping away the falsity of any kind of instrumental playing, but maybe particularly the voice, she talked to me about how she has to get a class of people, or, you know, her class of, of singers, to sort of find the courage and the and the relaxation and the honesty to just make a sound that is not messed with, not stylized, not uh, derivative of famous singers or popular or successful singers. So it's one of those things and and it's one of those things that's so mysterious but wonderful about the voice and it, they just stab into our heart when it when a voice does something that's completely real. Laura told me that when singers that she's working with finally get there and they sort of produce a single note, you have the entire class go, ah, oh. like she said, they literally will sigh or make like a note of pleasure at the sound of something genuine. I mean, these are truly deep mysteries, but it's got something to do with kind of letting, letting yourself go. I don't even know how you do it really. You know, you, you talk about a moment that I think really, really cut home for me in, in this, uh, from what you're talking about, which which was when President Obama uh, was a church service for the victims of a mass shooting. And I mean, this is who, you know, Barack Obama, I think, is arguably one of the greatest orators alive, <laughs> right? Oh I mean, he, God, he's, yes. his ability to make a speech is just unprecedented. It's, it's, it's unparalleled. And he chose to sing. And if I had to, if I had to guess what he would be better at, singing or speaking... <laughs> I would yes. say stick to the speaking. <laughs> and I'm not alone. You know, it turns out that, you know, his, <laughs> his wife also agreed and, and Valerie Jarrett. But he knew he knew that singing Amazing Grace is something that people needed him needed to hear from him more than a speech. And I, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that and what was happening. Yeah. Well, I was really I was trying to I was struggling to explain why Steven Pinker was wrong in saying that music uh, could be removed from our culture and not have a huge effect on us. I was trying to figure out why singing uh, does more than deliver. It's more than a delivery device of sensuous and sensual pleasure. It's more than ear candy. So what on um, what evidence can you find for that? And remarkably, Obama really came through for me. I had written about his beautiful oratory earlier in the book, but it was really the moment where he was speaking to the at the memorial of the Charleston church shooting, where a, a white supremacist uh, teenager, I think he was, very young man anyway, with a Glock, killed a bunch of the uh, of the worshippers. And in this uh, remarkable address, Obama pauses. He's he's speaking makes a few remarks, and then he stops for a remarkable 12 seconds. And 12 seconds counted out sometime. It's an eternity when someone's at a podium. You don't know what's going on. Is he having a stroke? What, why has he fallen silent? And when he, when he produces a vocal noise, it's the first note of amazing grace. He's got a baritone voice, so he's pretty low. You know, it's, and he starts. With that first note, you see everybody. You can see it on YouTube. Their faces change. The whole room changes and he starts to sing this song and everybody starts to sing with him. They get to their feet and they sing it with him. 
This, this to me, and it's a moment of, it sounds corny, but it's true. It was a moment of, of healing, togetherness, joy, surmounting something inexpressibly horrible that he really could only attain. And mind you, this is the best orator that I've ever heard. He could only attain it by not orating, not speaking, not speech, singing. The only way was to launch his voice into melody. And that is utterly stunning. I, there, to me, there's no... St- Some things lie beyond words, really. I mean, it ha- that, that song has beautiful lyrics, but it's that melody that's tearing you apart. So he, he pitched his voice into melody, and it made all the difference. It drew the room into community. It pulled everybody together. Anyone watching on television was pulled into it as well. Language, of course, is, a, is it pulls our species together. It glues us together. But nothing, nothing like music. Because if someone's speaking French and the, per, and the listeners only understand German, no one's being pulled anywhere except apart. They don't understand. But music, singing, the singing voice, I mean, it's the whole kit and caboodle when it comes to sort of uh, community, pulling us together, making us vibrate and beat together. I don't know. That, that's how I saw that moment. I thought it was a gift that I was able to point to that because, you know, what other proof do we really have? Science can't really prove it. You have to see it in action. I'll be quoting you when I apply for my next grant with the Pasadena Opera, which <laughs> I'm the creative director of. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners that John Colapinto's book, This is the Voice, is available at booksellers everywhere. And I want to end by turning to your personal story. It had a surprise ending for me. I thought we were going in one direction and <laughs> didn't have the ending that we wanted, but uh, or that, you know, I guess I shouldn't say wanted, that I expected. I think I understand. Yeah. I just want to let our listeners know that you had a vocal injury at, after, you know, singing uh, maybe too loud at a bar, and then it changed who you are as a person. And that's... That was the amazing thing. I, I developed a vocal polyp, which is from a vocal cord bleeding. We talked earlier about how the vocal cords are a valve that actually chop the airstream into pulses. So they're hitting together. Your vocal cords are literally banging together many, many, many times a second. And if you haven't done vocal warm-ups and if you're singing too hard and and not knowing really how to use your voice, like I was, um, you develop a bad bleed. You don't feel pain because there's no pain receptors. So I grew this, you know, scar-like bump on my vocal cord. And really that created this amazingly you know, this sort of rasp and growl in my voice. And it eliminated the the ability for me to sing. I just could not do that anymore. But I, I left it untended to. I had it diagnosed by a laryngologist who said, you've got a polyp, I can remove it surgically, but you have to be silent for six weeks. My career was at a point where I just couldn't do that. But 10 years on, I was doing a story for The New Yorker about a vocal surgeon, Dr. Stephen Zytels, who saved Adele's career by removing a polyp from her throat. And it was in talking to Zytels that he said to me, look, you know, it's not just your singing that's the fact. You are not talking uh, properly. You You are doing what people do with your injury. You're speaking around the problem. What he meant by that was I had retrained my recurrent laryngeal nerve, which actually controls the tension on the vocal cords. And I was slackening my vocal cords to a, a pitch where I could get the healthy part of my vocal cord to vibrate 
at least well enough to remove some of the rattle and growl. But what I was doing was I was limiting myself in my pitch range, in my music, in my melody, and all those musical structures and trajectories we talked about earlier. I was going into a more monotone way of speaking. So he said that is draining your voice of, of proper emotion. But he said you're also protecting your voice because you know as well as I do, John, that every time you go to a loud bar or if you go to a concert or, or a loud party, uh, the next day you're going to be raspy for, or the next week you're going to be raspy and uncomfortable. And he was right about that. And he said, furthermore, it's kind of changing your personality because I bet you're not sort of as outgoing and extroverted as you were. And that was absolutely true as well. So in this moment of revelation, as he laid this out for me, I said to him, so you're, wait, you're saying this little bump on my vocal cord is changing my life? And he said, totally. And he was not wrong. And it really is what launched the book. And I will say, anyone listening now may, may hear that I'm going up and down relatively well. You probably hear some gravel in my voice. I think what I've really, you know, managed to do is to really get quite strategic about being able to get some prosody into my, my voice while also keeping some of the most disturbing rasp out of it. But it's, you know, it's stuff I'm doing unconsciously and it's stuff that's taking a lot of um, effort. Not conscious effort, but I will be more tired after a day of doing interviews about this book than um, someone would that doesn't have a vocal polyp. That's for sure. And you're not, you're going to stick with that polyp. That's the ending. That was surprising. Well, see, now I think I've, I think I might have anticipated your question where you thought this was going somewhere where I was going to have this polyp removed, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you thought there was going to be a happy ending. Yeah. So you're, you're an optimist for heaven's sake. Well, I don't know that it's an unhappy ending. I think in no. some ways the acceptance is the happy ending, but tell us about that. Oh, nicely put. I did contemplate uh, having the, the vocal polyp removed when I was pitching the book because I thought, oh, wow, I can, I can say to my publisher, and furthermore, it's going to have a happy ending and this revelatory ending because I'll get it removed. I'll, be, I'll rise like Lazarus from the, from the graze, grave of voice death and, and be a singer again or something. And now two things actually happened. One of them was my editor said, you know, you don't, you don't have to. Like he, his point was, you know, I'm going to buy this book anyway, so... You know, don't do anything drastic if you don't want to. And that stayed in my head. And then the other thing was what I actually end up saying in the book, which is that in a weird way, I mean, I turned 60 during the writing of the book. And now I think I've, what have I gone ahead and turned something like 62, ridiculously enough. And I sort of came to this feeling that my voice is, despite everything I'd written about how, you know, our voices are, uh, well, I guess it's not despite, I guess it's because I was coming to the realization that our voices are us. Not just who we were born as, but who we become. You know, the scars, the nicks, the scuffs, the patina, the grain, the gravel, the suede. All of that is something that we acquire over years. However, we use or misuse or mistreat our voice. And it's it's somehow us. And, you know, I, I had people say they kind of liked the sound of the rasp. And, yeah, and I, I decided that I, I went to um, Coco Chanel's comment about faces where she said, by the age of 50, you get the face you deserve. And I decided that at 60, my rough and gravelly voice is, is the voice I deserve, which is, of course, the way I end the book on that very sentence. Well, another fellow Canadian, Leonard Cohen, would probably agree. <laughs> ah, yes. Leonard. The raspy, yes. raspy Canadian. John, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. What a pleasure. Great questions. Thank you so much. So that's it for another episode. 
Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Charles Blyle, and Dale LeMaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.